ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello there, welcome to The Minefield. The last one ever. No, for 2023. Is that the year, Scott? Well, Lee Darley's my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. Um, it's a special one today. Normally we try to interrogate the ethical and moral dimensions of modern life. But, I mean, we are doing that today, but this is an, another instalment in our book club that's not a book club. Uh, I keep forgetting the name of it. We never really agreed on it. I think we end up calling it not quite a book club. Mm, today, however, it is kind of a book, which is, we shouldn't really be doing that, should we, Scott? But this was my suggestion from a long time ago, and I I just find this irresistible. I don't know exactly what it is, and I'm wondering if through the course of this discussion you can help me figure out what it is, but I feel so genuinely warm towards this work <laughs> in ways that don't bear easy explanation. You're right. And in fact, let's double down on this sentiment. I am a Charles Dickens guy. I will never forget first reading Great Expectations. The way the characters are drawn, the mixture of compassion and cruelty and exposure and benevolence that Pip in particular undergoes, but also Dickens' way of tying everything up neatly in this beautiful little bow at the end where all of the unresolved threads find their place. And it's surprising. And then you look back and you think, ah, yes, of course. So I am a Dickens guy. I'm not much of a Christmas guy. I think I've told you in in the past, um, you know, Christmas is something that one does for other people. I am the least Christmas-spirited person that I know. I hate Christmas carols. I don't like Christmas music. I just, anyway. It's Christmas being something that one does for other people is... It's kind of ironically Christmas. The Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you tell me, I'm not a Christmas guy. I don't celebrate Christmas, yeah. but that seems my sense of it. Yeah. Uh, Marilyn Robinson, the great American author, described Christmas once as a ritual bordering on a collective orgy of heedless sociability and gift-giving that we should hold on to as if our culture's life depended on it. That strikes me as just about right. There is something remarkable about devoting a time of the year towards the preparation of gifts and food for other people as a way of opening one's heart, opening one's home to others. This is all just a way of saying that I am a Dickens guy. I'm not a Christmas person. I love A Christmas Carol. I love it. But one of the reasons that I love it is because it departs in every conceivable way from all of those things that make Dickens great. The characters are not deep. They're flat. They're caricatural. I still think they're vivid, though. They are vivid. Yes, they are. Dickens can't help but create vivid characters. But there's no secret motivation. What they are on the surface is what they are. Yeah, that's true. That's what I mean by caricatural. And yet there is something about them that is immediately graspable. There's also this order of importance surrounding the characters. So you have Scrooge. It's this wonderful onomatopoietic name, isn't it? It evokes tightness and stinginess and screwiness. 
yeah. uh, you immediately know what sort of person this is. And then you have the other onomatopoietic names that go along with it. So Bob Cratchit, uh, you, you kind of think, yes, Bob is short for Robert, but it's also Bob a week, Cratchit. He earns a pound a week, Cratchit. And even the surname gives the sense of kind of hard labor. Things are just being squeaked out. There's a sort of workmanly mm -hmm. feel to it. Uh, and then even, of course, Bob Cratchit's youngest, Tiny Tim. These are all immediately evocative. So you have these characters that are right at the front, that are right at the front of your, of your considerations. There's something about the name that already suggests something about who they are. And then you've got the background characters. And it's all plain. You've got Fan and Fred and Peter and Martha and Belinda and mm. Caroline, or just people who are referred to as Mrs. Cratchit and Scrooge's niece. So you've got the important people at the front. You've got the less important people at the back. You've got no great mystery or anticipation. You know exactly what's going to happen. And you know that Scrooge is going to be converted from his horrible ways right from the outset. Because it tells you. Scrooge himself even tells you. After the very first visitation, my heart has begun to set right. I've already begun to learn a certain lesson. And you know what's going to happen. At the same next. time as he's constantly insisting this won't work. Yes. So what I think is remarkable is you have vivid characters who are nonetheless caricatures. You have a story upon which mystery does not depend. You have a story which in many respects is vivid and yet fanciful. Um, you're supposed to believe it. You're not quite supposed to believe it. What overwhelms me, Waleed, about A Christmas Carol is its appeal to the sentiments its sentimentality, and its opulence. It overwhelms you with wave upon wave of feeling so that if you open yourself to those feelings, you cannot help but be borne along by it, which reflects the fact, I think, that even though Dickens was a massively popular author, I mean, already, already by 1843, when A Christmas Carol appeared, you know, his works were serialized. Uh, he wrote them monthly. They appeared in monthly installments. He enjoyed a sizable income from it. This was one of his first books as books. And he wrote it in order for it to become a kind of ready-made tradition. He wanted the cover, the binding, the illustrations. He commissioned Jonathan Leach to, to, uh, to draw four vivid, vivid, hand-colored illustrations for the book. He wrote it in a particular way. So it would be, if you like, it would transcend class. It would be both working and middle class. And it would be something that would be immediately, viscerally, aesthetically available to anyone, to all. So there's something about it that's meant to overwhelm you, I think, in the way that it does. And it's meant to appeal essentially to everyone. Yeah. And I, well, I think to that end, it, it succeeds. And I wonder if that's because what it's reaching for sort of the moral dimensions of it, hmm. are just immediately recognisable to people as self-evidently right. Maybe that's something that's conveyed by the simplicity of the story and of the characters in it, as you've identified. I mean, I, as I, I, I only on the weekend went and saw a theatrical production of it, which is currently playing in Melbourne. And by the way, it's a stunning... It's, you know, it's won Tony Awards and the like. And... The reason for that is that the, like the production is just quite extraordinary. 
But as I was watching it, I just couldn't escape the thought that in our age, no one could write it. It would just be regarded as as twee mm. or something. It would come off as hopelessly naive. It wouldn't be addressing a you know a real issue, which is to say, I don't know, something to do with abuse of power or I mean, I suppose in a way it kind of is, but yeah. But in a way, I'm, I'm going to pick up on that in a second. There's something else going on there, which I think is really interesting. Okay, sure. I, yeah, it just sort of struck me that it's the simplicity of what it's saying, but also the depth of it. Mm, that's right. So it's true the characters are simple in a way that they're. You said caricatures. Yeah, that's probably true. I wonder if archetypes might be another way of thinking of it. Well, um, well, when Scrooge's nephew Fred comes and gives his little impassioned appeal to what Dickens himself would call a carol philosophy, a philosophy that would then guide him through life, what Christmas actually stands for. And then you have Bob Cratchit begin spontaneously applauding in the background. I think, I mean, there's something there where the audience is meant to be reflected in the story itself in the form Mm. of Bob Cratchit. But it's also, at that point, I think you've moved beyond archetypes you simply have people who are so non-complex, who are so morally transparent in their particular positions in life that your heart is meant to, in an unproblematic way, simply go out to them or simply be repelled by them. Yeah, their, their virtue is in their uncomplicatedness. That's right, exactly right. Whereas Scrooge, is Scrooge complicated? I mean, in some ways he's not because he's just greedy, but he is complicated in that he's a bit more tortured than that. He... He's greedy, but that's because he places value on wealth and hard work as honourable in and of itself. So he's kind of, he's constructed a certain morality around this. It's not like he's simply greedy, I would argue, or greedy in a simply evil way. He has arguments for his things, right? So he doesn't want to give money to the carolers who stop by his door to be passed on to the poor because we have institutions for that and they cost enough. And if it turns out that these people cannot survive even with all this help then and they're going to die, then best they get on with it because we can reduce the surplus population, right? So, okay, there's an evil dimension. I'm using a word you use and I don't now, but you know what I'm saying, right? Mm. There's an element of that that makes him a baddie. But these are also arguments that you kind of hear in, in life and in politics, right? So... You see this when it's revealed, you know, his first employer, uh, who's the father of Belle, his first great love, which falls apart thanks partly to his own pursuit of wealth. He ends up holding a debt over him that sends him to the grave. And his response about all that is, well, you can't make exceptions. So there's, he's arguing at a level of system, isn't he? He's arguing his case at a level of sort of a level that is impersonal. It's divorced from the lives of people. And it's not that it's an incoherent argument. It's just one that is unfeeling, but also ends up, I think, legitimating positions that the audience instinctively regards as immoral or at least not in accord with their morality. So there's something about his complicatedness, I think, that counts against him in contradistinction to the uncomplicatedness of all the characters around him, perhaps because they're not corrupted by wealth or the pursuit of it. They don't have to make these compromises. They don't think about these sort of big decisions. They never put themselves at the centre of things. This is 
I think the other big thing, you know, Bob takes all kinds of instructions and demands from Scrooge and for the most part just complies, right? He doesn't fight back or <laughs> anything like that. That again goes to his virtue. There's a certain moral universe there, I think, or perhaps he's painting with a certain moral palette that is fascinating because I found watching it on stage in our age, in our time, to be an alien way of approaching morality, which is not to say a bad one. I think it's a superior one, actually. Hmm. Interesting. But it's alien. You, it's jarring. Well, it's not, jarring's not the right word because it's fun to watch and you're always in its warm embrace. But there's something about it. There's a cognitive dissonance of some sort where you go, this is not the way we do things now. Let me add just a couple quick things. Um, I'm really eager to bring in our guest because I think that so many of the fundamental dimensions of the play and also its aesthetic and ethical appeal is best kind of drawn out by means of three-way conversation. There's a couple things that I wouldn't mind to add um, before we get to that. Firstly, I, I would just say that the whole thing about Scrooge's first employer and the first great love of his life, none of that is in Dickens' uh, book itself. That's, a, that's an onstage uh, flourish. Um, it's not entirely out of spirit of the book. There are interesting dimensions to that, and especially if you consider the fact that one of the reasons that Bob Cratchit is so subservient as Scrooge's clerk is that you find out towards the end during the third night, or that third vision, the third encounter with the ghost of uh, Christmas yet to come, that uh, Scrooge holds a tremendous debt over Bob Cratchit. Mm. Uh, and one of the concerns is whether that debt will be commuted upon Scrooge's death to a more benevolent owner or whether, mm. if you like, it's Scrooge's all the way down. So there's something there which is already kind of in keeping. But I think one of the things that is fascinating is that there is an uncomplicatedness initially in the way that Scrooge is presented. I mean, our first description of him is a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and so sharp. Dickens, isn't it? Hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel has ever struck out generous fire, secret and self-contained, <laughs> and solitary as an oyster. What I think a one sentence. Of the, it's beautiful. One of the things That's that I pretty. think strikes me is that the book also, the Christmas Carol also lives by means of contrasts, and those contrasts are sharp. So, for instance, you have a description in that first chapter of misanthropic ice. It's actually one of my favorite. Ice, in other words, is misanthropic. Mm. Cold isolates you from others. Cold clamps you up. Fire is generous. Fire gives warmth. Fire is that around which we gather. So you have this wonderful scene later on of Mrs. Cratchit in a moment of hushed anticipation, opening up the copper in order to reveal, is this going to be a perfectly cooked pudding or not? And there's a mm. sudden eruption of steam, warmth, heat, steam. These are all things around which people gather, whereas cold isolates you. It's important that Scrooge is not affected by the cold. It's important that his house, a set of chambers that looks as though it had uprooted itself and walked to a non-social part of London, a thing that exists on its own and in kind of utter barren solitude. It's important that it is cold, that the smallest of fires is burning in the living area. Cold, in other words, is antenatal. It's ungenerous. It's misanthropic. It keeps itself away from other people. And this is the environment within which Scrooge lives. 
It's then so fascinating that as he is then taken on that first journey by the ghost of Christmas past, the first place that he visits is his own former self, a solitary, tired young man who has been left over at school while everybody else has gone on to Christmases at their home. And it's that recognition of his earlier solitude and his pitiableness Mm. in that solitude that first awakens in him a moment of remorse or regret for a young singer, a carol singer who came to his door, who he turned away in disdain and anger. And he wishes that that moment, you know, the ghost of Christmas asks, you know, what, what is it? Why are you sad? And he says at that moment, there was someone who came to my door who sang for me. And I'm wishing at this moment that I gave him a little something. At mm. that moment, he's not moved so much by the child's humanity as it is his own earlier humanity that has been lost, his desire for warmth, let's put it that way. So can I ask you that, Please. about that? What do you think, because there's that line in it that describes us as all being made but making in turn. Mm-hmm. What's our attitude to Scrooge in light of that? Because you know, one of the things of the ghost of Christmas past are the revelations of the conditions that created Scrooge, the relationship with his father being obviously very important in that. There's this thing about agency through it, isn't there? to use a kind of social scientific modern parlance. There's this something about to what extent is, is Scrooge merely a product of these things and to what extent is this on him? Now, clearly in the end, you'd have to say it's on him to some degree because he's capable of changing it. He just has to come to certain realisations. But there is something about the conditions in which he's lived as a child that, that is forging and that we are kind of forced to acknowledge Look, what what it is certainly for Dickens is the problem of forgetfulness and that forgetfulness gives rise or breeds a kind of callousness. So what's, what's so interesting is that a process of forgetfulness, what really amounts to a kind of transvaluation of what it is that gives life meaning for Scrooge has taken place. It's most beautifully put in the mouth of his sister, Fan, who says that at one point, her affection for him and her judgment, her opinion of him, would have been of greatest value. But his heart moved to other sources of value, namely money, acquisition, profit, wealth. He lost track of those things that are non-monetary that are nonetheless of greatest value. And the way that the book presents it, it's that transition, it's that transposition of value away from what is most valuable to that which has simple monetary value. It's that which has led to a kind of corruption. It leads to a sort of flattening out of speech, of articulation. You find this, for instance, in the at the beginning of The Third Visitor, where the ghost of Christmas yet to come takes Scrooge. It's interesting, that ghost is voiceless, says nothing, nothing. Mm-hmm. And yet he's a tutor. He takes Scrooge to listen in on the conversation of other bankers, of other merchants, and they speak in cliché and meaninglessness, and their interest is business and business only. There's no sociability, in other words. So it's this movement of value to purely monetary value that strips Scrooge's life out of all those things that are of greater value. And I think you find that greater value brought back to Scrooge's memory most powerfully in two particular scenes. One is a flashback, and that is the flashback 
to his first employer, Mr. Fezziwig, who, again, talk about an onomatopoeic name. <laughs> uh, Fezziwig is his first employer, and he throws these events of heedless sociability. He convenes dances of raucousness and joy and delight, and it brings, it brings this matter, this kind of sheer mixture of delight and remorse to Scrooge, watching what this employer does to his employees. And at one moment, the ghost of Christmas past asks, you know, this is a very small thing that Fezziwig accomplishes. There's no money. There's no great opulence. He's not giving great gifts. And Scrooge says, small, small matter, that is in its spirit. He, referring to his previous employer, he has the power to render us happy or unhappy, to make our service light or burdensome, a pleasure or a toil. Say that his power lies in words and looks, in things so slight and insignificant that it is impossible to add and count them up. What then? The happiness he gives is quite as great as if it cost a fortune. In other words, mm. the delight of an employer, the ability of an employer to make an employee feel glad to be alive in the world, to feel the degree of gratitude that someone else is giving thanks for them. That is kind of Scrooge's first recognition. There are sources of value that are beyond monetary. So there's, there's that which creates this remorse. And it's almost like, my God, why couldn't I do that for my employees? And then, Walid, you had this other great moment in the second visitation, where in contrast to Scrooge, who, like I said, is barren and cold and non-generative, and you would have to say antenatal in the sense that he both hates children and doesn't have children himself. He's visited by the ghost of Christmas present, who is in every way the opposite. Uh, at one point, Dickens refers to the ghost's breadth of breast. He has this exposed chest that is capacious enough to hold to hold a tremendous heart. This ghost takes Scrooge, and it's, it's interesting, by the way, that not only does he sit atop a throne of bounty, of foods of every variety, he holds in his hand a torch, so warmth, that's in the shape of a cornucopia that is, in other words, the embodiment of generosity, plenty. He takes Scrooge on a tour of icy Christmas morning London. Everything is cold. People are scraping the ice from their front stoops and from the front of their houses. There's a kind of uncomfortable shuffling around that, you know, you get the feel that movement is, is difficult. Nonetheless, nonetheless, London, even in the poorest areas, is bursting with generosity and mm -hmm. plenty. Can I just read you? You loved that sentence before. This is one of my favorite passages ever written in any genre, in any book. Wow. So the ghost of Christmas present takes Scrooge. Scrooge takes his robe. The streets were full. People who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee. The poulterers' shops were still half open, and the fruiters were radiant in their glory. There was a great, round, pot-bellied basket 
of chestnuts shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen lolling at their doors and tumbling out into the streets in their apoplectic opulence. There were ruddy, brown-faced, broad-girthed Spanish onions shining in their fatness of their growth like Spanish friars and winking from their (laughs) shelves in wanton slyness at the girls as they went by and glancing demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. There were pears and apples clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from conspicuous hooks that people's mouths might water gratis as they passed. There were piles of filberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance ancient walks among the woods and pleasant shufflings ankle-deep through withered leaves. There were Norfolk buffins, squat and swarthy, setting off the yellow of the oranges and the lemons, and the great compactness of their juicy persons, urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten (laughs) after dinner. Oh, my God, Waleed, it's gorgeous. It's like every word is succulent. Every word is just adding to the sense of opulence. And the idea is, but but the idea is, these are not in manor houses. These are not in palaces. There is enough. That's the central idea. There is enough. And those who don't have eyes to see can't see that there's enough, which is why one of the things that the ghosts do is to show Scrooge. Vision here is important. And here's how I think Iris Murdoch would read A Christmas Carol. She says at one moment in Metaphysics' Guide to Morals, she says the selfish, self-interestedly casual or callous man sees a different world from that which a careful, scrupulous, benevolent, just man sees. Scrooge's eyes are being opened to see that a stingy world in which those who don't have enough should just die away, as Thomas Malthus. And, And by the way, A Christmas Carol is a great philosophical critique of the political philosophy of Thomas Malthus, who said that nature offers a feast, but there's not enough space for people at the table. And so instead of artificially extending the table and artificially diluting the food, we should let those who are excluded from the table simply to die off so there's prosperity enough for those that are left. Dickens, yeah, Dickens surplus is saying, population. Exactly, surplus population. Yeah. Dickens is saying there's enough. There's enough. There's always enough if only you have eyes to see. So this thing about vision I think is really important because the, the great transformation is obviously in Scrooge's attitude, his, even we might say his character, his dispositions, but it is in his vision. It is in what he sees. And, uh, you know, this, this becomes a very deep theological point, right? This immediately puts me in the mind of, you know, people like Al-Ghazali and Ibn Arabi and mm-hmm. so on mm-hmm. for whom... Like, this is an epistemological thing. This is an epistemological truth. Uh, it's one of their critiques of using reason as though it is a sole and sufficient tool for epistemology, is that actually virtue allows you to discover things. It allows you to see things. That, to, to use uh, Al-Ghazali's metaphor, where the heart is polished, it reflects truth. Where mm-hmm. it is covered up, it doesn't. The, the truth somehow becomes distorted and so on. And we this is a way, a whole way of thinking, and maybe this is part of the tweeness of, of A Christmas Carol, the way it strikes us as twee in this age that makes perfect sense in probably most other ages of human existence, actually, it, is that it has this understanding that it is through the reforming of character that actually truths become discovered, mm. that the truth isn't merely an intellectual exercise, that it is also a spiritual one, that it is also a moral one. 
and that the transformation of the self is actually the transformation of perception and therefore of epistemology. It's a really deep point. I don't know if Dickens is intending it in quite that way, but I could not stop thinking about that, mm. as, especially because it comes in the form of visions and and so on and so forth. Um, there's so much more I want to get to, but we also have a guest that I think we have to get in as soon as we possibly can, really, because she'll have much to add to this discussion. Our guest is Bryony Doyle. She's an award-winning writer of fiction and nonfiction. She's also lecturing creative writing at the University of Sydney. Her most recent novel and it's fabulous, incidentally, is why we are here. Bryony, it's a great pleasure to have you on The Minefield and of this show, of all shows. Thanks for having me. What an introduction. You've heard us weave our way through Dickens's streets. What alleyway do you want to take us down? Oh, it was difficult to be off mic for some of that, Scott. I've got to say, because there's so many angles that I was like, oh, oh. For instance, um, you know, this thing about flat characters, which is, that's E.M. Forster's yes, uh, definition, right. flat and round characters. And, it, you know, it wasn't to say that the, a flat character is not important, but rather that it stands specifically for one thing. And I think, you know, Dickens is definitely making use of flat characters to the, his specific ends, his specific moral points. And also that great maximalist prose that you've been reading beautifully from. I mean, Dickens is the king of maximalist prose to a point where any other writer, it would be totally ridiculous. You know, in his first description of Scrooge, he says, a frosty rhyme lay on his head. Now, I had to look up rhyme and rhyme just means frost. So essentially it was a frosty frost lay on his head. (laughs) And as a teacher of creative writing, you know, I would be crossing things out and saying, pick one, which just, it goes to show how, how differently we engage with language now and the expectations we have of how we describe people and places and situations. But Can I just point out really quickly, Dickens here gives more character to French onions than to some of the other characters who populate the book. And that doesn't mean that they are thereby dehumanized. Instead, he is almost enchanting a world with plenty so that even even the frugally sumptuous dinner that the Cratchits enjoy, you know, a meager goose – with a little bit of applesauce and potato. Even that is a feast like the feeding of the 5,000 with an endless basket of loaves and fishes. So it's, it's more that by deepening the character of the food, that adds something to the world that then becomes uniquely hospitable to the people who inhabit it. I think every element of the prose here is there to underscore the main points. And that's part of what you were talking about, about the predictability of it. And and part of the reason why we're happy to go along with this predictability, like we know how it's going to turn out and yet we kind of turn away from our cynical impulses. I mean, I don't want to go too far, but you might call it performative these days because it's kind of allowing us to notice that Scroogey bar humbugness in ourselves and make a decision to be like, oh no, I'm, I'm going to go along mm. with this more um, sumptuous belief believing, generous, generative kind of spirit in me. I'm not going to, I'm not going to poo-poo these over-the-top descriptions and this um, conveniently choral world. But there's still a weightiness to the inevitability, I think, because of the path that takes him there. So Scott read a passage before. My favourite passage, is it okay if I read it? Mm-hmm. I love, it's, it's a very different one to Scott's because it's not about plenty or more. It's a, it's a different sort of thing. But to me, it was the it's the one that struck me immediately that I carry around with me more than anything else. But I would think which is a central theme throughout A Christmas Carol that, uh, yeah, I, 
I think in some ways, I, I keep harping on the distinction or the differences between then and now as times and about the way that we're inclined to see the world and approach these questions. None captures it more than this for me. So this is Fred, where he's talking about Christmas. He's critiquing Scrooge's idea that profit is really the main thing. It's the thing that matters. And he says, there are many things from which I might have derived good by which I have not profited, I dare say return the nephew, Christmas among the rest. But I'm sure I've always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be, apart from that, as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year, and this is the key bit, when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. Mm. And therefore, uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe that it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. The bit I want to alight on, it's think of people below them, sure, but fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other bound on other journeys. The centrality of death, the, the fact of death as the, the wake-up call, the thing that puts all other things in perspective, the thing that actually makes wealth in the end pointless because you leave it behind and especially if you have no heirs, what of it? And there's something about the way Fred phrases that. Fellow passengers to the grave, not on other journeys, that is all the other journeys. It, it seems in this moment what, what I think Fred's saying, and maybe this is just me, is that the other journeys are illusory. And they're the things that allow us to discriminate and set each other apart and so on, to see above and below. But actually, if we're all just fellow passengers to the grave, if the central idea is that that's the ultimate destination, that's the ultimate journey, that's the passage, and we're all just passengers to that, there's a certain radical equality that comes from that, even if it's not an equality in circumstance or an equality in wealth or an equality in, I don't know, talents, abilities, other gifts that people might have. There's a fundamental equality in the end, in the, in, in the nature and the, the finality of that journey that therefore has to cast its light back through everything else. It's that that allows people to open up their shut-up hearts freely. It's, it's that which allows the consent of Christmas. And I don't think what Fred's saying there is that Christmas is an aberration. I think what That's right. Fred's saying is that Christmas reveals the thing, to pick up a word Scott used before, that we forget. It reveals our forgetfulness. This is actually the way we should be with a focus on the ultimate reality. I think you're exactly right. And I think that's why I think the issue of forgetfulness is so important. And it highlights the fact that time is so important in A Christmas Carol. It's not just that you have three successive nights all taking place, as it turns out, on the final night. And it's not just that his previous life, his current life, and his future life, and dare I say future death, are also all held together at a single moment. And it's not even just that there is a kind of singularity about Christmas time, a sacredness to that particular time that is not meant to be merely singular, but rather is meant to 
be kind of mnemonic. Uh, it's meant to sort of direct us to that which is of most value. But this, I think, brings us to a question. I'm really interested in what you might think about this, Bryony. The issue of past, present, and future all coexisting together at a single moment. At the end of the book, Scrooge refers to it as past, present, future, all co-inhabiting in his chest. You have these characters who are, I mean, the ghosts themselves are paradoxical. They are contradictory. The ghost of Christmas past is old and young, strong and weak, delicate and firm, past and present, uh, all together. And it seems as though the way that memory is given its moral quality is by reflection on the past, cognizance of the bounty of the present, and the proper degree of fear concerning the future. All these things, I mean, that's the purpose of the book, isn't it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, what he says is past, present and future, they'll all be in me. I, I won't forget these lessons. But I think also in kind of taking him back through time and showing him his past and showing him the little hurts and the little losses that he might have turned away from because grieving is unpleasant, because acknowledging the loss of the past is unpleasant, because something like the pursuit of material wealth um, is concrete, is something that you can focus on. By showing this kind of incremental dehumanising or this incremental becoming Scroogey, you know, it's sort of suggesting that, you know, we let go of things because we're afraid and then we're going to get stuck in a sort of moral position that does something very particular to the future. And, and that's also scary, you know, if we if we present this kind of um, miserly moral position, we, we don't acknowledge our past um, and we insist that at the present everything is as it should be, people get what they deserve and nothing more. And then the future is becomes a really scary place. Even though I think in the novella, the ghost of Christmas yet to come is kind of, it's the one that's most scary for Scrooge, but it's sort of the least uh, surprising part of the story in a way. He's kind of already come to that threshold of change and we're just in this moment of catharsis with him. But I think this is one of the great challenges of literature too. Like how do we have the past, present and future existing in a really whole way on the page for the reader? How do we kind of um, produce that experience for a reader in a way that's moving, um, in a way that does something to us emotionally? So this is one of the other really curious things about Scrooge. Everything about him, from his misanthropy to his, I mean, physically, he is dislikable. You wouldn't want to be near him. Uh, everything about him is repellent. Because of the way that we prioritize the harm we do to others as the kind of the moral criteria whereby we judge a person's actions, there is something kind of strange about the idea that through the course of the novella, we are being asked to accompany Scrooge and to be closer and closer to him. There's an intimacy about the book that is inseparable from its overall goal, its moral tutelage. And that's why one of the things we're supposed to learn, and this is what Fred says quite specifically, his offenses carry their own punishment, and I have nothing to say against him. It's not that Fred doesn't judge Scrooge, and it's not that Scrooge's punishment isn't coming, but in a very real way, Scrooge's own life 
its spiritual immiseration, let's put it that way, is its own punishment. That's a really difficult thing in many respects, given what he does to other people. And yet it's inseparable from the, from the book's kind of uh, aesthetic and moral purpose. Do you know what also about that passage though, Scott, that's interesting is the way Fred's criticisms of Scrooge are so circumspect mm. because of that, I think. So in other words, that realization allows a certain generosity. So he doesn't describe him as a terrible person or he says he's a comical old fellow. Mm. That's the truth. And not so pleasant as he might be. Like mm. it's very light in the way that he does it. And that's why he has nothing to say against him. There's something about the recognition of what he's doing to himself that makes him, I don't know, would you say even a figure of pity rather than mm, scorn so. or anger? Mm. I don't, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what the right word is, but there's a lightness of touch there that I think is quite revealing. Well, he's the only one that goes on a journey as well. So we need to pity him. We don't. We can't, as readers, hate him. Mm. And mm. so therefore none of the auxiliary characters can hate him either. He needs to be of less consequence than that. His journey needs to be of most importance to himself and the things that he realises along the way are, are moral lessons for himself that we, we don't see anyone else going through, um, you know, a moral transformation in the story. So there is no reading of A Christmas Carol which doesn't grapple with the idea of the transformation of what one's business is. Marley is, is in many respects, incredibly well-known. We all can see the depictions of Marley with his jaw kind of strapped to the top of his head, more or less, by a bandage. Um, We know the image of the chains. And we know that what Marley, in fact, is there for is both to anticipate what's coming And he says, you will have three visitors. Interestingly enough, Scrooge's emphatic four good afternoons, whereby he tries to dismiss his nephew Fred, those four good afternoons whereby he closes himself off to Christmas in the form of Fred, those four good afternoons are then broken open or counteracted, if you like, by four visitations, Marley and then the three ghosts of the various Christmases. Um, Marley is there to prepare Scrooge. He's there to open his eyes. Scrooge's eyes are meant to be open beyond his sense. I mean, what bah humbug means is this is a fraud and I'm not going to be taken in by it. So there's something that is a kind of a epistemological accomplishment that has to take place at the outset. So that's the act of preparation. But then the other thing that Marley is there for is to show Scrooge what the end point could be or what the end point must be. It will either be chains and torment, or, and this it seems to me is one of the most crucial lines of the book, Marley is bemoaning remorsefully, mankind was my business, the common welfare was my business, charity, mercy, forbearance, benevolence were all my business. But far from the book then in place, and if you like, a moral burden, you know, morality as a business, Bryony, morality is joy opening one's life to the lives of others is joy. Yeah, and the scenes of joy in this are just 
over-the-top scenes of joy, like the Fezziwig's domestic ball. You know, Mrs Fezziwig comes in and she's described as being, you know, one vast substantial smile. <laughs> you know, there's a fiddler who plays music and when he's done he cools his face in a pot of porter specially for that purpose. So it's just dunking his head in some beer to calm down so that he can play some more for the ball. Um, and this is kind of juxtaposed with the, this real joyfulness that Scrooge inhabits and feels like he's really there in that moment, he really is in the past and feels himself as he was then, is then kind of um, juxtaposed with the present where he he goes into the sick beds and all of these places, yeah, the hospitals and jails and all of these, these places where joy was still there um, and it was still blessed by the ghost of or the spirit of the present. And then it's sort of contrasted to this really quite horrific moment where the spirit of Christmas present introduces him to these children of man. He's, Scrooge says, oh, whose children are these? And the mm. spirit says, oh, they're the children of man. And they're, they're just abject children who can't feel any joy. They're ragged. They're scowling. They're kind of gazing out from um, his robes and clinging to him. Um, and the children are want and ignorance. Mm. Um, the spirit says to Scrooge to particularly beware the boy ignorance. And he says, for on his brow, I see that written, which is doom, unless the writing is erased. So we kind of have this this kind of play between joy as, yeah, as a moral position, as something that you can lean into that is inherently generous, but that also inherently acknowledges loss. You know, you, you lose your youth. You might lose people like Scrooge loses his sister and he loses his true love or the love that he had when he was young. Um, and then you also have this kind of movement towards, you know, want and ignorance, this turning inward of the self, um, focusing only on greed and turning away from anything that's not understood in that way lies doom, which I think is really, it's a very clever and also horrific sort of play that Dickens is doing. But it's also really clever because, you know, kids get it. And so do adults. And we're all, mm. we're all kind of understand what's happening here. So there's clearly a political dimension to this. I mean, I think, Brian, you might have mentioned earlier before the idea of fault or blame or that I think Dickens was quite concerned at this idea that the poor were to be blamed for their lot and that this mm. reflected that they were deficient or that they were bad people in some way. And Christmas Carol clearly is inverting that in, in sort of a just on the surface, you can you can see that. So there's that sort of you know political dimension to it, or social socio political dimension, if you like. It's also self evidently, I think, a deeply religious text. The way Christmas is spoke about spoken about doesn't elide. In fact, it affirms many of the religious aspects to it. When I went and saw the play, I went with someone who a friend of mine who immediately remarked, "Well, this is just the Christian story." That's all this is, it's the Christian story of redemption and so on through the acceptance of grace, etc. So there are those religious dimensions to it. Do you think a story of this power or even this story at all could work without the religious dimensions? Or do they really have to be there in order for this to land in the way that it does? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I, I was thinking about this as I read and reread this um, and thought back about how I considered it as a child as well. And I, I almost think that the religious dimensions are beside the point now. Mm, I think I Dickens was kind of secular, I thought. I mean, he had a point in his life where he was anti-organised religion. Um, and I feel like a, a redemption story, while it might have its origin in Judeo-Christian narratives, 
you know, it's kind of beyond that now. Like we recognise a redemption story without necessarily attaching it to a specific kind of um, religious message. And I think this this message of generosity and joy and and connectedness to the possibility of grief and the possibility of loss and not turning away from that. I don't think that really needs to be a religious message. I think that well, fits that, without religion. Yeah, so that I understand, but except the particular nature of this redemption, I take my friend's point, is particularly Christian, maybe not exclusively so, but it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's immediate, it's about the acceptance of grace. I really disagree, um, Waleed. I mean, quite, quite both for theological, but also for just kind of literary reasons. Um, both Charles Dickens and someone uh, whom he would go on to sort of influence and influence him in turn, uh, George MacDonald, their version of Christianity was either quite secular or it had nothing to do with redemption at all. So, for instance, for both Dickens and for George MacDonald, what there is that is of importance in Christianity isn't the redemption, cross, death, uh, grace, but rather incarnation which is to say a kind of superabundance of goodness and possibility within the material conditions of the world. The idea of incarnation as in, as in the world contains the superabundance of the divine. That for Dickens was everything. And that's why it's not so much that Scrooge is imprisoned in sin as he is blind to the reality of the way that things are. And it's, I think it's incredibly, let's call it humanistic, that the way in which he comes to his senses isn't by confronting the sheer humanity of other people, but by confronting his own vulnerability and solitude as a young man. In other words, the ghosts lead him the direction that he can go. He first will identify with himself, not others, and then by identifying with his earlier self. He's then able, and then through his sister, uh, through her affections and reprimand, he's then able to open his life to others. There's, there's something about that, I think. It's about abundance and the non-necessity, the artificiality of stinginess and scarcity. I think that there's an irony at play that to me undercuts a religious message, which is that at the moment where the kind of climax where Scrooge realises that he is the dead body mm. that all of the um, robbers have robbed all of the bedsheets and clothes off and all of this. And, and he surely is the only person in the story who oh, doesn't yeah, know absolutely. that the dead body know. is him. <laughs> yeah, we all know. We all know by then. But then he's taken to the graveyard, you know, and the, the spirit of Christmas yet to come points at the gravestone and makes him look at the gravestone and he sees his name. And of course, yeah, we all know that it's his name. So it's kind of a, an odd moment and an ironic moment because he goes there's a line that's something like he makes as, as if to rub his name off the stone. Yeah. And I thought, ah, oh, I feel like some, perhaps some of the reasons why we accept the, the tweeness of the story is because of these implanted bits of irony. You know, we know, we adults who are reading the story know that there's nothing you can do to, to rub your name off the gravestone. We are all, and Fred, the nephew, says it at the beginning, we are all together, you know, from the cradle to the grave. That is what we do. We are born, we live however we live, we make whatever impact we make upon the people around us, whether that's generosity, whether that's cruelty, whether that's greed, as in Scrooge, and then we die. So it's not actually a 
about rubbing mm. your name off the tombstone. Um, it's actually about what you can give and what you can be while you're alive, which I think is this material self, you know, it is this being in the world, in the material world, on earth, not uh, a kind of a spiritual realm in a more Christian sense. That's how uh, I yeah, took it, it yeah. anyway. But, see, that's, but that's why I feel that death was such a central theme, right? Like I think that moment of the rubbing, trying to rub your name off the gravestone is a revelation of that Scrooge's way of approaching life only makes sense when you don't factor in death. Yeah, it but, only makes but, sense when you think you're just going to live forever where yeah. it doesn't really confront you. I don't think so. I think it's more like it only makes sense if you don't factor in grief. For me, it's not about it's not about avoiding death or about getting to heaven or any of those kinds of things. It's about acknowledging mortality and what we can do with it. Yes, but even more than that, what Scrooge is desperately trying to do is the, the the hardness of his name in the stone also reflects the fact that his reputation and the effect that his lives has had upon others is at this point irrevocable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so by rubbing it out, he's trying to say, this cannot be my fate. This isn't it, is it? Am I able to change? Am I able to make my life a blessing to others rather than a curse? Well, what a fabulous way for us to end the year, Bryony. Thank you so much for accompanying us on it and leading us through it. It's been wonderful to have you Pleasure. and Thanks wonderful to talk me. about such a great work. Uh, Bryony Doyle is a lecturer in creative writing at the University of Sydney, author of most recently of the novel Why We Are Here. I mean, that sounds resonant with the things we were just discussing, doesn't it? I guess for this week's edition of The Mindfield, which is now at an end for the week, but also for the year, as I might have mentioned earlier, there will be best of the Minefield episodes coming over summer, beginning next week. So we won't be completely away from your podcasts and your radio machines, but uh, it won't be original content until, or new content, I should say, until late January in 2024. Being the end of the year, though, Scott, there are some people we must acknowledge and thank on the way out. There are indeed. Uh, the team in Melbourne has helped us out to no ends. Paul Penton and the team of audio engineers, including Carrie Dell, Ariel Gross, Christy Miltidiadu, Timothy Jenkins, and Leo Keefe. Here in Brisbane, we couldn't do it without Steve Fieldhouse, Dave White, Ni Adapuibi, Dylan Prias, and of course, the irreplaceable, <laughs> unsuppressible, the irrepressible, irrepressible <laughs> Sinead Lee. Uh, she's the best in the biz. We couldn't do it without her. Thank you for being the hero of this program and for putting up with the two of us. Scott, thank you. Thank you, Willie. And uh, we'll see if we can get on with this again next year, shall we? And I feel like ending with God bless us, everyone. <laughs> You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.